Man, I can't stand taking my little baby Campbell kids to get their shots soon after they're born. I'm a big sucker for it. I can't stand it. I, I try to pawn it off my bride as much as I can, but sometimes I'm, I'm the one that's to take them to the doctor's office. And my bride's so much better at this than I am, but they have no idea what's going on. They, they have no clue what diphtheria is or what tetanus is or how syringes work. They're just happy to be playing with the paper on the weird bed thing. And so you're with them and you hold them close like this and you know what's coming before they do. And you know, this is gonna hurt me worse than it hurts you. And they're as happy as can be until the needle enters their chubby little thigh and their face begins to change and they inhale. And there's that brief pause before they finally just cry. And then like you cry and you try to look cool on your way out, walking past the nurses, but they can all tell that you've obviously been crying. You see, I know that I've brought them there out of my care for them and my bride's care for them. They would be better off and what's happening even amidst this pain and through this pain and because of this pain is ultimately life-giving for them. But they have no concept of the mechanics of it. They have no concept of diphtheria. They have no concept of tetanus. And so I just have to hold them, feel the pain and groan right along there with them and know that ultimately, ultimately, this is gonna be for their good. Right now, we are hurting. We feel the pain. I mean, I know people who have been laid off, who've been furloughed. All right, the, the diagnoses of the coronavirus you know, continue. And uh, other health afflictions are, are striking people in our church family. I mean, this is a time of economic unrest. This is a difficult season. It just hurts right now. But do you believe that God is able to work all of this, even this, according to his good will? I believe that he's able and I know that he will. My prayer is that as we study Romans 8, 26, to the end of the chapter, that you, my skeptical friend, just scrolling across social media and stumbling upon an old high school friend's Facebook watch party and joining in, that you would come to see firsthand exactly what today's text means because it describes what's happening in your soul as we preach it. That right now, you currently have no concept of what it means to be more than conquerors in Christ or to be totally inseparable from the love of Christ. But before we're done, you will. And that proves that it's true. Like a 2,000-year-old script that's suddenly describing what's happening in the room around you right now. This is how Christians are made. Our curriculum that we use, Explore the Bible, from next gen through our adult ministry small groups, uh, it covers Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12 to verse 25. And so I want my sermon to begin right there at verse 26. If you haven't joined a small group, join one because verses 12 through 25 are amazing. And if your small group hasn't joined on with Explore the Bible yet, please join in. This is why I preach what I preach. See my Bible, I've outlined that's what Explore the Bible covers. And so I'm preaching here. Romans 8, beginning in verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is beautiful. God is praying for you. The Spirit is praying for you. As you're going to see later in the text, Jesus is praying for you. As you see in Revelation, Jesus is praying for persecuted saints in the book of Revelation. God's praying for you. Now, 
I want to take a brief moment to address a common misinterpretation of the verses that we just read. And if you're my skeptical friend, you're not familiar with church, this may seem like you're sitting in the living room for a family talk, but you know, uh, bear with me for a moment. It might even edify you as well. The common misinterpretation of these groanings of the spirit, these unspoken groanings, is that, is that these would be a proof text for uninterpreted speaking in tongues in the context of corporate worship, also known as glossolalia. However, that's not the case based on just even a very short stretch of the context of the passage of scripture. Now, my, you know, I have deep admiration for brothers and sisters in Christ who, you know, uh, practice charismatic worship. I pray that they do so in accordance with the instructions given by 1 Corinthians 14. That's what we do at Highlands Community Church. But this text is not about speaking in tongues. The groaning came from verses 21 through 23. All right, look at the context. That's why the passage opens up. That's why verse 26 starts with in the same way. It's because it's drawing down what was written just a few verses prior. Verse 21 says that the creation itself will be also set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. It is not that we are speaking in tongues. The spirit is causing us to speak in groanings that we don't understand. Rather, the text is that these are unspoken groanings. These are unspoken because the spirit, being spirit in nature, is not audibly physically heard. And these groanings are not random words that we don't understand. They are the same groanings that were mentioned in previous verses. In verses 21 through 23, this is the believer groaning in creation. The groans of a woman in labor whose body is racked with contractions, whose current groanings and pain are about to lead to a new life entering the world, alive within the womb and now alive outside the womb. And so this whole groaning comes from the original affliction, the, the symptoms of sin. We were once in perfect sinless fellowship with God in Eden and then sin entered the picture. One day we will be once again in sinless perfection where the dwelling of God is with men in heaven, where he wipes every tear from our eyes. He himself is the source of our light. But in the meantime, we groan. Paul says that all creation groans, longing and aching for this coming redemption. That's the groaning that is described here. This is actually far more beautiful than just prayer that you don't understand. This is a, a prayer that you can't hear because it's prayed by the Spirit and it's prayed on your behalf. The Spirit is praying for you, that Jesus is praying for you, that the, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the, the triune God, three in one, that he is for you. And you know that everything that the Spirit prays, the Father will answer. Everything that the Son prays, the Father will answer. Why? Because everything the Spirit prays, everything the Son prays is going to be in the will of God. And if it's prayed according to the will of God, God's going to answer it. Why? Because it's according to his will. God only answers prayers that are according to his will because he's sovereign. The text even says right here, because he intercedes, meaning represents us in prayer for the saints. That's believers. If you're a believer, you benefit from this. If not, jump on board, man. According to the will of God. That's why it starts off within the same way. That's where the word groaning comes from. It's because the Holy Spirit is like all of creation's birthing coach. He is groaning with us, breathing through us, and bringing about new life because of all of it. What does this indicate about the character of the Spirit of God? That he would groan at all. 
it speaks to his empathy. Jesus is the one through whom everything was created, John 1. And he, according to Hebrews 4, was tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. So Jesus weeps beside Lazarus' tomb in John 11. Why? Because he empathizes. He felt pain. He felt grief. Why join Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace? Because he's standing there with us. Why does the Spirit groan with us? It's because he empathizes with us. That God is not aloof and distant. The deists are wrong. God is Emmanuel. He is God with us. The Spirit is groaning right alongside you. He feels the pain just like you do as the, as the syringe enters your chubby little thigh. Right? He, he feels the pain alongside us and groans with us and is going to bring about new life because of all of this. Let's look together at verse 28 and look closely at this verse because it is theologically tremendously important. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. If you came from a prosperity background teaching, this is going to obliterate your world. Not all things are good. God never promised you good things in this life. He actually warned you that you're going to have trouble in this life. All right, rather, we know that all things, even bad things, ultimately can be worked according to God's good and pleasing and perfect will. Jesus warned us that we would have trouble, but he has overcome the world. We see this likewise written by Paul in, 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians rather, chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. Indeed, everything is for your benefit, so that as grace extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not give up. Somebody in the social media comments type, amen, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. Listen to this. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. David Hume had it wrong. Immanuel Kant got it right. The things that you see with your eyes are eroding as you see them. I don't care what kind of alloy they're comprised of. Eventually, they're going to erode. Everything you've ever tasted in your mouth is going to rot. Every sound you've ever heard is eventually going to dissipate. Everything that is seen is temporary. Kant was right. There's more to reality than what we can observe with our senses. And that matters eternally more than everything we see, everything we hear, taste, and touch, and feel. Everything that we observe with our senses is temporary. Everything that is behind and beyond and transcendent matters more. Did you see this beautiful promise built within this text that our momentary and light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory? God works all things, even bad things, according to his will. So bring on the rain and let it create new life. Only Christians can have such a beautiful understanding of temporary affliction. That God is groaning with us right there in the midst of the pain, holding us close while he brings about new life, even through all these things. All things, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So my skeptical friend, you can't tweet this out of feel-goodery. You gotta love God before this text applies to you. And Christians, don't let the fame of this verse obfuscate the significance of the final clause. That we were called. And we were called not arbitrarily, but according to something. And that thing according to which we were called is, is purposeful. And it's not somebody, somebody's 
purpose who has something other than your best interest at heart. It is God's eternal purpose. You were called according to the purposes of God. This calling is going to come back later in this text. It's that calling moment, the moment that you first believe. I remember my calling moment. It was April 16th, 1991. I was in the front row of Heritage Baptist Church, and I saw, I saw the, the choir raising their hands and shouting, crucify, and I felt convicted for my sin, and I became a Christian right then and there. And, and for you, the calling may, moment may look something like this. You were sitting there in your pajama pants with your phone curled up on your couch in the middle of quarantine, and some dude who becomes increasingly hairy for some reason, he must use Rogaine, I do, and he starts sharing the gospel with you. And for the very first time, you became utterly convinced of the, the resurrection of Jesus and it changes everything. That might be your calling moment. This might be your calling before this sermon about God's calling is done. Do you see how this text is meta nonfiction, leaping off the page to grip you by the soul and change your eternity? God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, before we begin verse 29, I want to ready our hearts for what's to come because verse 29 is the official threshold where people will either be deeply humbled by this mountain of theology or become increasingly arrogant because of their encyclopedic knowledge of theological terms. Highlands Community Church, we will not become ironically more arrogant the more we learn about the character of God. Okay? It is self-defeating to learn more about God and theology and become arrogant. That is a full-on indicator that you don't understand what you've read. Theology, the suffix ology meaning study of, theos, God, the study of God should show you just how great God is and how menial we are, how sinful we are, how small we are. So if any kind of arrogance comes from your increased theological understanding as we pass through this threshold into verse 29, you haven't understand, you haven't grasped what you've read. He must become greater, we must become less. Right? The, the most accurate of theologians can barely bring themselves to speak for conviction for their sin and, and just beholding the majesty of the holiness of God. Once we cross this threshold, we're going to begin our ascent up the zenith, the pinnacle, the summit of the highest theological mountain peak in all of scripture right alongside Ephesians. Chapter 8 is going to give way to chapter 9, to chapter 10, to chapter 11. Now, the very first word of chapter 12 is therefore, and what awaits us on the other side is a straight down black diamond slope. Therefore, and then it's just gonna become rapid fire, practical application. But in the meantime, we're about to come up the steeper bank. We've been in the base camp around Mount Rainier, you know, paradise, that beautiful place with the snack machine. Okay, no more snack machines at this point. It's about to get really steep. And this, this text should scare us out of, out of fear for misapplying it. I want you to ready your heart because you may have some preconceived notions that were named after dead dudes who have the suffix ism attached to the end of their name and you may be holding on to those things and scripture might say something different and where those things conflict, one of them's gotta go. And I'll tell you right now, it's gonna be your preconceived notion. Let scripture shape your heart even if it changes it. Sola scriptura, amen? Scripture alone, no creed but scripture. This is all that we need. So with humble hearts, read verse 29 with me. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, 
so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. The foreknowledge of God is incredibly important. Verse 29 says that God foreknew Christians. This is a text that's often used as the the sort of the proof text, the, the basis for a soteriology, which is a study of how Christians are made, how salvation works, called Molinism. It's named for Luis de Molina, who was a, a Catholic priest who was originally devising, I believe, a theory about God's perspective on time, but inevitably it became more of a soteriology. It began as something to explain God and time. It became a theology on how salvation works. And within Molinism, the heavy emphasis is placed upon God's perfect knowledge and his middle knowledge. His perfect knowledge is God's knowledge of everything that has been, everything that will be, everything that is. His middle knowledge is God's understanding of the hypothetical. God's perfect awareness of every conceivable permutation of every conceivable alternative scenario, every alternate reality, everything that could have been. This set of scenarios is referred to as counterfactuals within Molinism. And so God, sovereignly, foreknowing everything that could have been, orchestrated the best of every imaginable scenarios. And so within Molinism, man has full decision-making agency. He has full performativity to his words and decision-making faculty. And he can make decisions based on his own understanding. And then God ultimately is the one who's sovereign over all of it because God foreknows everything. So you'll see this text is sort of the primary proof text for Molinism. Next week, we'll study chapter 9, and that is sort of the primary proof text for Calvinism. And then chapter 10, sometimes when removed out of the context of chapter 9, becomes the proof text for Arminianism. And then I live largely in chapter 11, I'll be honest with you, where God has the sovereign right to choose some to be saved, and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The chosen vine of, the, of Jews and the engrafted branches of the Gentiles. God's sovereign election, calling upon the name of the Lord for salvation, and God has foreknowledge and sovereignty over all of it combined. So wherever you plant your flag, I want to encourage you, make sure that the theology is done. Okay, it's best to plant your flag, and if if you choose one chapter to be your Summa Theologica, make sure that the author is done. Because if you plant it where he has more to say, you're likely to slip up. There is some merit to Molinism for sure. God has foreknowledge. And there are members of Highlands Community Church who subscribe to this view. And I fully respect you as brothers and sisters in Christ. Praise God for that. But this foreknowledge of God is important when it comes to particularly open theism. All right, so I'll not rebuke Molinism here, but I will rebuke open theism. Open theism is the view that God was sitting there nervously eating his popcorn on the edge of his seat, watching the movie take place and just wondering if Iron Man was gonna get the gauntlet off of Thanos. And and he was just as riveted as all of us were, that God doesn't know what's gonna happen. If you have fallen prey to the idea of open theism, let this text correct your understanding of God as he has revealed himself. That God has foreknowledge. You can't have an omniscient God without God knowing everything that was. You can't have an omniscient God without God knowing everything that is. And you can't have an omniscient God without God knowing everything that will be. This is why the book of Revelation exists. If you believe that God doesn't know what's coming next, you need to cut the book of Revelation out of your Bible and 2 Thessalonians and Daniel while you're at it. Because God has already demonstrated to us that he has foreknowledge. 
So if there's anything in your heart that you've fallen prey to, a diminished view of God that strips him of his omniscience, let the scripture correct it. That God has foreknowledge, that God foreknows all things. This is beautiful, man. When you go into the jungle, you want a guide who's been there before. When you're, uh, when you're facing something that's difficult, doesn't it, doesn't it help your soul to know that you're being led by somebody who has been through this thing before? God existing outside of time itself as the alpha and the omega, the sovereign creator, the one who is the creator and the one who is also the victor at the end of all of it. He is the one who is interceding for you. He is the one groaning alongside you. He is the one who is working all of these things according to his good and pleasing and perfect will. So the foreknowledge thing changes the evangelistic moment, doesn't it? I mean, if you, had, if you had some fears, Christian, about bringing up the gospel to somebody, let this text comfort your soul. When I was about to graduate college, I invited all my friends who were far from God to join me at Pencheros, this less than mediocre Mexican place across the street from, uh, from the College of Music at Florida State University. And I knew that after four years, I might not see these people ever again, and I had never brought up the gospel really with some of them. So I did that. We would have a less than mediocre quesadilla and I'd share the gospel and I'd give them the chance to tell me what they thought. I was blown away when one of my atheist friends said, Jesse, I've been waiting for you to do this because I know what you believe and for you to not share the gospel with me is kind of like you telling me to go to hell. So I'm glad that you invited me to this, even though the quesadilla is not that good. I'm glad you brought this up. Now God worked in all of these things and a couple of my friends gave their lives to Christ through that. Praise Jesus for that. But Christian, if you've been afraid to bring up the gospel, would you lean upon the foreknowledge of God? And my skeptical friend, this may be hard for you to grasp, but it's a nail biter. Like the evangelistic moment, the time that a member of Highlands Community Church brings up the gospel to you, that's a nail biter for us, but it's a foregone conclusion for God. He already knows how the story ends. God is simply sovereign. So those he foreknew, he predestined, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That word predestined, Man, that can be a trigger word, can it? It's a buzzword in Christian communities. It's a buzzword among skeptics as well. Why do we, why do we hesitate to acknowledge the idea that God would predetermine things, even just some things? Why, does that, why do we bristle at the idea? And my skeptical friend, my skeptical friend, you might have a real bone to pick with this as well. Like predetermined, predestined. Jesse, I... I don't even believe in Jesus and I've seen decisions that I've made work out pretty well. I don't even have the Holy Spirit of God coaching me. And in 2012, I bought a whole bunch of shares of Amazon and I sold them at the right time and I bought a house that had blue shutters. So like every step of the way from buying Amazon to, to selling it, to choosing the house to the blue shutters, like that was all my decision. And at no point in that did I ever profess Christ. At no point in that did an angel pop up and say like, hey, choose this house. So the idea of God predetermining things might be off-putting to you. Can I give you an example? My son, Austin, he has this Nintendo 2DS and he plays Mario Kart and he chose the yellow turtle because even though it doesn't have the highest top speed, it has the best acceleration. And so he chooses his car, modifies his car and he wins his races. And he likes to play that game while sitting in the back seat of my car while I'm driving him somewhere. And so while I, his father, am bringing him home, taking him places, 
He, in his own little microcosm, his own small world, he's making decisions and he's choosing strategies. He's reaping the benefits of his own decision-making. But larger and the bigger picture, he is literally enveloped in a bigger plan. He cannot describe to you this mechanism. He doesn't know how a V8 combustion engine works. He can't describe to you the composition of the tires touching the road that are carrying him somewhere. He is simply making decisions as he can. It feels like he's making decisions, but in the larger, grander, bigger scheme of things, his father who loves him is taking him home and the door's gonna open, the gates are gonna open. He's gonna go home and have fellowship with his father one day. It may feel like you're making a lot of decisions right here and now, but God is ultimately, ultimately sovereign and in control, you see. Now, Christian, you might likewise bristle at the idea of God predetermining things. And you know why that is? It's because we really cherish our idea of free will. And you might might think about your own Christian testimony and you might view it wrongly, not giving God credit for drawing upon you. You might think, well, Jesse, the way that I came to experience Christ was that I looked at the buffet of worldviews that were available to me, assuming that this buffet was adequate and that the truth wasn't out there or the truth wasn't multiples of them. And I, evaluating them upon their merits, chose Christianity or by virtue of my upbringing was brought up in Christianity and I've selected it and I've chosen to stay faithful to it because I made this decision. But doesn't that assume neutrality? Doesn't that assume that you don't have a sin nature? When Romans 8, 3, from the same chapter we're studying today has already said that it's impossible for the mindset of the flesh to submit to God's law. That was the spirit of God drawing upon you, my friend. This thing that we call free will, I think what we really mean by that is capacity for sin. Because we experience capacity for sin, which we call free will, and we even observe it biblically. Here's what I mean by that. God created Adam and Eve, gave them one command. The very first statement as recorded in scripture that God spoke to mankind was a qualification of their freedom, right? That they were free to eat of any tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of evil, they must not eat. And then he gives them the capacity to disobey him. That's really what free will is. Biblically, every time we see people exercising their free will, the results are catastrophic, like in the case of Adam and Eve. When we do good, that's Christ working in us. You see that in Romans chapter seven. So we ought not brag about this free will thing. It's really just our capacity for sin. The good that comes from us, even you, my non-Christian friend, even you, my skeptical friend, see the history of the nation of Moab. Even people who defy God can be used by God. See Gamaliel, even people who disavow God can speak on his behalf. So even the good, every good thing that comes about was really God working through us. And when we exercise our free will, what we're really exercising is our ability to sin. Why would God give the 10 commandments like do not murder, but then leave us with the ability to commit murder is because sure we have free will all right the freedom to murder the ability to disobey god i think we really overestimate this free will thing i think what we really mean by that is capacity for sin give glory to god for the good things that he prepared in advance for you to do and realize that he's not actually impressed by the decisions that we've made on our own part and, and be humble, my friend, because you may be playing Mario Kart in the back seat, but your father is driving the big car and he's taking you home. This leads Christians to sometimes disagree. We will sort of impose upon the scripture our own experience, and we will let our experience determine how we interpret what scripture naturally says. Okay, now sometimes this, sometimes this actually leads to even like a hyper-Calvinism or a fatalistic Dortian Calvinism. 
All right, man, like I, I, know of, I know of one man who was absolutely stoned out of his mind on drugs and he woke up floating face up and he just knew that Jesus was Lord and he walked home barefoot, saved and as a Christian. And you better believe that this guy holds to the most strict of reformed and Calvinistic teachings that there are. And then meanwhile, you juxtapose that with a friend of mine who took 14 years to lead this guy to Christ. I mean, brick by brick, has this been your story likewise? That it began for him with, okay, I know that matter can't create itself. I've been pretending like universes create themselves and that's, that's just absurd. I know that can't be the case. So that brick goes away. And then on this wall around his heart, God goes after another brick a few years later. Okay, I, I gotta acknowledge life can't create itself. Abiogenesis is fatuously implausible and impossible. I don't care what Miller and Urey discovered when they electrocuted some tar with amino acids. That's just ridiculous. Life doesn't, life doesn't come from non-life. That, and so that brick goes away. And then it becomes like, you know, I know that this conscience of mine, this pesky conscience of mine that's telling me that there's right and there's wrong, like this isn't, this isn't a, a, an adaptive trait that lends itself to the survivability and fitness of a herd. Like this is, this is authoritative. I'm gonna answer for how I disobey this thing. And, and so brick by brick over the course of years, gradually somebody will come to the point where they actually have their conversion moment and they confess Jesus is Lord. And they're repentant from sin from that point forward. Right? Whenever they do sin, they repent. Whenever they're tempted, they, they resist. And God's beginning to make them more and more like Christ. So whether you experience the Holy Spirit of God like all at once, which is probably gonna make you want to interpret Romans 9 like it's about each individual, we're all Jacobs or we're all Esau's because that's your experience, or your experience was more gradual and it really did feel like a decision-making process. In all of these things, God has foreknowledge. If you came gradually to your belief in Christ, you know that God foreknew you would do that? So in either scenario, God is sovereign and he predetermined that those who were in Christ would be conformed to the likeness of his son so that we would be, so that Jesus would be like the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Jesse, what is that verse about? It's about how we were adopted into the family of God. And that even though we were once sinful, we, be, we would be imputed with the righteousness of Jesus. So though we were sinners, we would stand side by side with Jesus and be looked upon by the Father with the same righteousness as the Son. Here's Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 4. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless and love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him, we've also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. Do you know that God can work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose? So that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. Thus, we, though we were sinful, would be counted as though we were brothers and sisters of Christ. How is this possible? It's through the very next teaching that we would be justified. Those he predestined, he also called. We talked about the calling moment. This could be your calling moment. And those he called, he also justified. What does justified mean? It means that though you are sinful before the judge, you would be counted sinless. Why? Because you believe upon Jesus and his atoning work on the cross and his victory in the resurrection has set you free from sin and death. 
Though you were guilty, you now stand before the judge justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What is this referring to? This is referring, referring to the perfection of heaven in the future. That God foreknew you. And he foreknew that you would believe. And so he called you. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. God saw all of this coming and worked everything according to his open and good, his beautiful, beautiful, good, good grace. This passage then begs the question, what do we do with this? Well, Paul actually asks and answers that question for us in the next verse. What are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is 